Welcome to the Fertile Womb Podcast. My name is Holly, and I'm the owner of Rosebud Wellness, which is a women's holistic health practice in Southern California. In my practice, I use acupuncture, yoni steaming, abdominal massage, and the fertility awareness method to support women on their conception journey. In this podcast, I will be sharing about some of the practices and tools that I use in my practice, and also will be interviewing women about their own personal fertility journey, as well as other professionals in the fertility space. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy. I hope you are having a beautiful start to the new year of 2024, and it feels really energetically different to me than 2023 did. So I hope the same is true for you. And if you are actively trying to conceive this year or will be sometime in the not so distant future, then I have an exciting offering for you. So in the spirit of Valentine's Day, the month of love, February, which is one of my favorite holidays, it is a time to celebrate love between you and other people, as well as love for yourself, your sacred body. And so I'm using this as an opportunity to share a Yoni Steam Herb Blend with you. So the package that I'm offering for the month of February includes three one-on-one sessions with me. So the first one is 90 minutes and the other two are 75 minutes and we go through anything that you want to go through. So if you're wanting to learn how to track and chart your cycle with the fertility awareness method, really get into the details about BBT, cervical mucus, cervical position, fertility testing, lab testing, if you're wanting to learn more about yoni steaming, abdominal massage, if you want to come get some acupuncture from me, if you are local, these sessions can be used in any way that you desire. And on top of those three one-on-one sessions, I will also be throwing in a free customized yoni steam herb blend. So I have six different herb blends that I have created for a variety of different conditions, and I will be making a special custom blend just for you and your Yoni if you sign up for this special offer. And I will be shipping it right to your door, depending on where you are. If you're local to me, you can come and pick it up, of course, completely for free. So it is included within the package price of just $2.97. So you'll get three one-on-one sessions and a free Yoni Steam Herb Blend for just $2.97. So if you'd like to claim this special offer in February, then all you have to do is reach out to me via email and I will send you a link. So my email is holly at rosebudwellness.com, or you can also DM me on Instagram, rosebud underscore wellness and claim this special offer. Hello everyone. And welcome back to the fertile womb podcast. I'm going to be sharing today about something I have a lot of personal experience with and that is hypothalamic amenorrhea. So if this is a new term for you, then basically it just means that you don't have a period. And the reason for that is functional, meaning that it's from under eating, over exercising and or from stress. And so for most women, this is due to some combination of those three things. And what I found in the hypothalamic amenorrhea, which I will just refer to as HA from now on, so I don't have to say it every single time, um, many women want to blame the loss of their cycle on stress. So I just say, I add in stress because it is possible for a big stressor or chronic stress to 
cause amenorrhea in some women. But I do find that most of the time, some of these other things, there's an energy deficit, which means either there's not enough nutrition coming in sort of overall or the energy expenditure in the form of exercise or other movement throughout the day is just too much relative to the energy that's coming in in the form of nutrition. And it's also possible to struggle with HA even if there is nutrient depletion. So maybe calorically the person is getting, the woman, is getting enough food in overall, enough calories where you would think that you know she should be healthy and cycling normally. But if there's not enough nutrient density coming in, that can also be equally as problematic. And I do also find that, man, there, it's just anything that I say, I'm like, well, that's not the full story. So I'm going to try not to get into too many tangents um, in this episode, because there's so many things that I could say about it. And anytime I listen to somebody share about HA, I always kind of have in my mind, like, oh, well, that's that's not the complete picture for everyone, or that wasn't my experience. So just know that this conversation is very nuanced, and there's no way that I can say everything about it, everything that I think about it in one podcast episode. And it really depends on the person what will actually be the thing that makes a difference. So it's really easy to kind of, you know, especially in our instant gratification culture of wanting there to be like a quick fix solution or the one Instagram post that's going to make or break your fertility or your ability to get your period back if you are struggling with hypothalamic amenorrhea or have in the past. But really this conversation goes really deep and it is something that I personally struggled with for many, many years. It's it's a little hard to keep track of even exactly how many years because um, there was birth control involved and my period would kind of just come and go erratically. So it's hard to, to really count, but I would say probably 10 to 15 years of my life, there was some wacky stuff going on. And I, I never really was the type of person that had a regular cycle until now, um, which is really, really pretty amazing. And that is a direct result of all of the the information that I've learned about optimizing your fertility, which is what I share about on this podcast. So anyway, um, basically what causes HA is that you're not ovulating. So there are some women that can still sort of technically have HA, even if they are having a regular bleed, but they are not ovulating. So the only time, the only way to really know definitively if you are ovulating, there's a few options. One is that you could get an ultrasound every month, which no one would actually do. The other options, um, which I think are much more user-friendly would be to do some of the things that I share about all the time. Um, basal body to track your basal body temperature. So that's where I first started. Um, and I was able to see that there was absolutely no fluctuation in my temperature. So it wasn't a surprise to me why I wasn't getting a bleed. And then also to track your cervical mucus, which is more nuanced. And I do find that especially in an HA situation, there is likely to be also pretty limited cervical mucus. And when cervical mucus is, is 
limited. It's a little bit harder to track with the external wiping method that I typically recommend. So it, yeah, it just is, is not so reliable of a sign as seeing that the temperature is a little bit easier to definitively see what's going on, especially in early recovery. And then cervical position as well, which is an optional sign. And then you can also use LH strips or OPKs, ovulation predictor kits. So I usually recommend to use all the things. And I start with fertility awareness tracking, so temperature and cervical mucus. And then we invite in these other friends like cervical position and uh, OPK testing if we need to, if there's if things are not completely clear um, from the other signs. In an HA situation, which for most of my experience of learning fertility awareness in the beginning was really just a flat line of my temperature, sort of just like little bits of up and down, um, you know, throughout. And I will include in the show notes a, a chart that I posted on my Instagram at one point of one of my HA charts where it literally is just, you know, there's, you know, one day it could be. 97.3 and then the next day it's 97.1 it kind of just like bops around like that but there isn't ever a sustained thermal shift that you would see to definitively know that you're ovulating so there is a spectrum when it comes to ha so and i've been on all parts of the spectrum depending on where i'm at with my with my nutrition mostly as well as exercise so it can go from you know, you're not having a period at all, you're not ovulating at all. And then as you're recovering, you might notice that you'll you'll maybe get your period back, but then ovulation is really delayed, or you have a really light period when you do get it, or you have a super short luteal phase. So if you start to ovulate again, then maybe you have like a seven-day luteal phase, which in a more optimal cycle, it would be 12 to 14 days. And optimally, you would be ovulating sometime between days 10 to 23. And so you might be noticing, I've definitely had these situations where I'm not ovulating until day 30 or 40 or something like that. And a doctor would probably look at that and instantly diagnose me with PCOS because they don't often know about hypothalamic amenorrhea and the fact that it can be on sort of a spectrum of, I haven't completely lost my period, I haven't completely stopped ovulating yet, but my system is nutrient depleted enough that it's not it's taking a really long time for these hormones to get to the levels that they need to in order for healthy ovulation to occur, in order for enough progesterone to be produced to have a more optimal length luteal phase. So those are of the things to be looking out for um, as you are working on recovering your cycle, if you are somebody that has struggled with hypothalamic amenorrhea in the past or are currently struggling with it. So in the HA recovery space, most typically what I see is that the recommendations are to stop exercising or to significantly reduce your exercise at least, and then to eat 2,500 calories per day. And what I'm not seeing so much in the HA recovery space is a focus on blood sugar balance, regular nutrition, so eating every three to four hours, eating breakfast in particular, prioritizing protein, and especially prioritizing foods which are very nutrient dense. 
So a lot of the recommendations remind me a lot of eating disorder treatment. So unfortunately, I've had a significant amount of experience in eating disorder treatment centers because I was really struggling for a good portion of my life. So I I sought out more targeted treatment um, when I was a little bit older. And I think that it was partially because my sister had a baby, my first niece, and this was almost nine years ago. And when she was born, I felt a love unlike any other love I've experienced. And it was so pure and, and deep. And I thought, you know, am I really going to miss out on being a mom because of this stupid eating disorder? Am I really going to let my body make this choice for me? Or do I really want to get over this? And I will say that I don't think that I could have done it on my own at that time. I was very ill. And I remember saying to my mom at one point, you know, like, I want to eat more and I physically can't. Like, I get, I would get so overwhelmed. It's almost hard to describe now because I don't feel that way anymore. But at the time, I, I just remember this panic and overwhelm and out of body sensations. And I really think I needed to just get some somebody to kind of force me to do what I needed to do. And that's what I did. I went to residential treatment and I was 29. And it was one of the most awful experiences of, of my life and also one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I felt more like myself than I have in, you know, than I probably had in the past 10 years prior to that. And it was also really hard. I was facing, you know, all of the reasons that I had an eating disorder, all of the traumas of my life and the ways people treated me and the disappointments in my family and friends and relationships and everything was sort of coming to the surface, all the things that had been buried, the reasons I was starving myself. And so it is really important that when we're talking about nutrition for fertility and body changes, that it isn't just like a Oh, you just have to learn to love your body or, you know, it's okay to be a little uncomfortable or just keep eating all of the, you know, things that you're most terrified of and it will be fine. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that's been so challenging for me being in the reason I haven't shared about HA before on the podcast is because it does feel so nuanced to me. And there are so many things that I can say now to people and things that I do personally with my own nutrition that back then I can't imagine having been able to do. So I do also think it's important for women to feel or to, to have an opportunity to be honest with themselves about where they're actually at and what's actually possible for them. So for me, you know, my 29-year-old self, thinking about what, yeah, what I, what I'm, what's actually possible for me, what's the next step for me, not like what's the 
optimal, perfect thing to be doing, but like, what am I actually capable of now? And unfortunately, after I left that time, I think I had pushed myself too far or I had been pushed too far, whatever the case may be. And then I went flying backwards in the other direction and lost a ton of weight, went really back into my eating disorder. And I I think what I learned from that experience was sort of the the advantage of chipping away at things and you know being honoring the the subtle shifts and changes that you are able to make and not maybe blasting yourself uh open too quickly just to try to get to some sort of optimal end goal so i mean i i do think it's a little bit different too i was not actively trying to conceive at the time it was just kind of this seed in my brain of i do want a baby and I've said many times to practitioners I've worked with, providers I've worked with, that I I don't know if I want kids. I can remember saying that and that I want to decide that for myself and I don't want my body to decide that for me. I don't because my period was gone more than it was present. And so I knew that there was a potential for there to be fertility issues from what I had been doing to my body. So anyway, um, I've been in and out of treatment a few other times since then. I would say that that time sort of really sticks out in my mind as being the beginning of of this really sort of arduous journey of trying to get over this crap. And it's partially about body image. It's partially about feeling good about myself, but it's so much deeper than that. And I do think that for some women with HA, if they just kind of went on a diet, um, if anybody's familiar with Nicola um, Rinaldi, I was going to call her Rinaldi, but she has a different last name now um, because she got divorced like me. And I can't remember what her new last name is. But anyway, she wrote the book, No Period, Now What? And she's been on the podcast too. And so if you are are familiar with, with her work a little bit, then you will know that she was, you know, thinking about getting pregnant and wanting to get really healthy. And so she started this diet and exercise um, to try to get her herself healthier. And so her experience of HA was sort of like a diet gone wrong, which I think that can be the case for a lot of women, that they think that they're doing something for their health, that they're maybe intermittent fasting or um, doing keto or cutting out carbs or paleo or whatever, and they end up losing their period because they are not getting enough nutrients. And it's sort of more of a, oops, like I just didn't, I didn't know that was going to mess with my cycle. And now that I know here, let me make these changes. So for me personally, that was not my experience. I really had um, you know, deep psychological things that needed to be worked out in order to get the nutrients that I needed in into my system and able in order to be able to to do that. It wasn't just a matter of education. So that's kind of, that's just something that I wanted to share about HA recovery is that it's not going to be the same for everyone. There are some people that can take a course or you know do an HA recovery program 
and never look back and just be like, okay, cool. I'm, you know, sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable in my body. I'm a little bummed that I have to buy new clothes or whatever the case may be. And then for other women uh, like me, it is um, a multifactorial situation where there does need to be a number of providers that are involved in order to be able to support the person. And so when we're working on fertility, it is nutrition is a huge part of the work that I do. And I don't really think that there are any accidents in the world. What I, I think is so interesting when I think about the trajectory of my practice, I really didn't enter into Chinese medicine or working in holistic health thinking I'm going to work on fertility. I don't, I don't think that anybody really knows exactly when they first start out on something where it's going to go, or maybe some people do, but I certainly didn't. I remember when I was in school thinking that I was going to work with emotional issues, which we're always considering the emotions in Chinese medicine, but I, I didn't really think specifically about fertility. At that time, when I, I was 24, I really didn't think I wanted to have kids, so fertility didn't particularly interest me. But what I found so fascinating was the use of the menstrual cycle in Chinese medicine and how much information you can understand specifically about a woman's overall system just from assessing the quality of her period. And because I had been struggling with amenorrhea for so long and had also been on birth control, I was sort of like, well, I have this huge gap in information about myself. So I got to figure that out. And the rest of the rest is history, really. You know, everything that I've studied and, and worked to uncover since then has really been in an effort to try to understand this part of women. And, and it's really been so meaningful and so beautiful to me to to uncover this for myself and then just also bear witness to so many other women um, having the opportunity to uncover it for themselves as well. So in my own experience of trying to get my period back, it, I was initially you know, going the Western medicine route because I didn't know any better. I had been to the gynecologist before and I got birth control and probably you've heard me tell my story about um, my mom overhearing me talking to my sister about that I was going to have sex with my boyfriend. And so I needed to get on birth control immediately. And it was probably the right choice at that time. None of us knew any better. It's fine. Um, but so I did that and my period would go away and then they would give me uh, what's called Provera. And it's basically a progesterone challenge. So it give you a progesterone for a few days and then you stop taking it and then your body just has a withdrawal bleed. It has nothing to do with actually your natural hormonal system. It's not supporting you in any way. It's literally just a medication to force something to happen. And that, the bleed that happens from a Provera or progesterone challenge is not actually a period because it has nothing to do with ovulation. It is just a withdrawal bleed, basically. And that's the, sa the same as true if you're bleeding you know, if you get a bleed when you're on birth control, on a birth control pill, for example, it's not actually a period, it's just a withdrawal bleed that is based on synthetic hormone exposure and not based on having ovulated. 
produce progesterone and then progesterone falling and getting a bleed. So anyway, I've talked about that previously. So anyway, then they would just switch me to a different birth control, crossing their fingers basically that it wouldn't cause the same thing, then it would repeat. So then I ended up getting several transvaginal ultrasounds and they were basically just looking to see, you know, if I had all the parts in all the right places and I did. And there were some times when they would say that I had some functional cysts. And at the time I didn't know anything. I was just kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And I was learning about polycystic ovarian syndrome. There were times when doctors would say like, oh, maybe you have PCOS, like that's why you're not ovulating and that's why you have cysts. And in my practice today, in 2024, there are still many women that come to me saying that they have PCOS that actually don't. The only symptoms that they have are that they have cysts on their ovaries and have a delayed ovulation. And those two things can happen for any number of reasons. And HA, being on the HA spectrum, being nutrient depleted, exercising too much, being under a lot of stress, all of those things can also delay ovulation and that can result in cysts, functional cysts on your ovaries. So that is really different from a PCOS situation, which is more related to blood sugar balance and insulin resistance. PCOS is a story for another day. So anyway, um, then I eventually got a, an uh, MRI of my pituitary gland, and basically they were looking to see if there is a tumor, which sometimes that can cause amenorrhea as well. And I have a friend, and she was on the podcast a, a little while ago, so if you want to go check out that episode, um, but she shared about her, she did actually have a pituitary tumor, and that was causing amenorrhea, and she was alerted to that because she stopped taking birth control and then just didn't have a bleed anymore. And so she that's one of the issues with birth control is that it can really remove women from being able to assess what's going on with their their overall health and well-being because it's masking what's actually what would actually be happening in their body without exposure to these synthetic hormones. So that's just kind of a really interesting story, but I did not have a pituitary tumor. So that was not the reason for my amenorrhea. And just an FYI, during all of this testing, the Provera, the birth control pills, the transvaginal ultrasounds, the MRI, all of the lab work that I had done, going to a medical doctor, a naturopaths, a functional medicine doctor, during all of this time, I was at times significantly underweight where... It's really surprising to me that nobody pondered that perhaps it could be from HA. The HA diagnosis is something that I came to myself from reading Nicola's book in 2016. And, you know, I had been struggling way, way, way before that, before I was first exposed to this term at that time. And so, you know, my labs would be normal or some things would be low. And I just remember doctors would sort of always be like, oh, well, we don't really know because you haven't had a bleed. So we don't know like what day of the cycle you're in or anything. So 
you know, there's all these ranges of the different hormones depending on where you're at in your cycle. And so some doctors, I talked about this on my lab testing episode, but some doctors will be resistant to testing labs because they say that they fluctuate throughout the cycle. And yeah, duh, that's sort of the point. And that's why you need to know when to test certain hormones at different phases of the cycle. But in an HA situation, they're kind of right. Like we don't really know where I am, but there are sort of optimal levels for LH, FSH, and estrogen on day three of the cycle, which is the beginning of the follicular phase. So that would help you to see, get a little bit of like a baseline of where is this person at in terms of their hormone levels at on this day. And if they're super low or out of balance, then that would give you some indication of what's going on. So um, nobody really ever mentioned diet to me apart from, you know, people would sometimes say, you know, you need to start eating meat or you need to eat more, but it wasn't really so specific. It was just sort of a general, you know, maybe you should only run once a day instead of three times, or, you know, uh, maybe you should go see a, a nutritionist that will help to support you, which, which I did. And I do think that depending on where people are at in the, their trajectory of life, it, it also depends on their, their readiness. And it's possible that I wasn't able to receive everything that was being offered to me because I didn't want to, I didn't want to go there yet. So that's fine. So they're, yeah, they're the two main take homes from all of that experience for me that I got from all of those providers was maybe you have PCOS and it will probably be hard for you to get pregnant. Those were kind of the two main take homes for me, which, you know, at the time I didn't really too much care about either of those things. And I just was living my life and doing things that I enjoyed. But I did have that seed planted in my head of it's probably going to be pretty hard for you to get pregnant. And I remember them mentioning that I would probably need some sort of medications, some sort of fertility drugs in order to be able to achieve pregnancy if I ever wanted that. And it was kind of like in one ear and out the other at the time. But then when I'm 29, you know, meeting my amazing niece for the first time, that seed is sort of like, oh, hmm, am I ever going to have an opportunity to experience this for myself? So, um, you know, I do think that words are powerful. And when we're talking, especially as, as a provider myself, I'm, I'm always trying to be really thoughtful of the ways in which I'm conveying things to the women that I work with to not come from a space of, of blaming or hopelessness ever, you know, that, and I also don't want to be a Pollyanna, you know, where it's just kind of like, everything's wonderful and you're going to get pregnant. Like I want to be realistic about what's in front of us. You know, if there's a really significant sperm issue, that's real. And that's part of something we are going to be navigating. Or if there's no cervical mucus to speak of, that's like, let's keep working on it. And I will never tire of trying to figure out what's going to be the thing that will work for any individual 
woman, but I, I do think that statements like these can stick with people forever, you know, and that medical doctors can sometimes be really callous in the ways in which they deliver the information they're trying to relay. And, you know, I think I remember this specific doctor and she, I think was trying to do like a tough love kind of thing with me. It's like, well, you're probably going to have a hard time getting pregnant if you don't get your shit together sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think it could have maybe been delivered in a, in a different way. So I do think that um, some of the things that I, I think aren't talked about so much in the HA recovery space, some of the things that I think I could offer that are a little bit different is that it's really not just about eating more. So like I said, it you know, in eating disorder treatment, it is, you know, we have three meals, we have three snacks every day. It is pretty balanced with fat, carb, protein, that kind of thing. Um, but there isn't any room for talking about nutrient density and that not all foods, not all calories are created equal. And I understand from a life-saving perspective, which is what an eating disorder treatment center is, you know, a lot of these women, myself included, were, you know, having to need, having their labs tested every other day to make sure that their liver en enzymes were in a safe place with the refeeding process. And so eating disorder recovery is a little bit of a, a different type of situation. But I will say that, you know, the just eat more in any, like, whatever it is, is not very helpful, especially for people that want to get pregnant, because we really do want our nutrient stores to be optimal. And this is part of why I haven't shared about this so much on my podcast yet, because I know that when I was in eating disorder treatment and even in HA recovery, you know, there is sort of this anything that you're doing that's like clean eating or, um, you know, really focusing on on only eating healthy foods, like that's that's a form of orthorexia, that which is basically an obsession with only eating healthy things, and that's equally as detrimental to your health as you know eating things that are not so health supporting. For example, I'm trying not to to say like specific food types, but so I do think that people women need to be honest with themselves kind of about where they're at and what is actually most supportive of them. Because I know that there have been times that I've been reading things or listening to things and they'll be talking about like, oh, like cutting out gluten or dairy or uh, soy or whatever and, and feeling kind of like, I need to put blinders on. Like I can't be exposed to any sort of restriction because I'm trying so hard to get out of that. And a friend and I were... Um, kind of talking about this thing, this type of thing the other day where she went from being a vegan and then she, we were working together. I was helping her chart her cycle and I was sharing with her, you know, like the most nutrient dense foods are animal products, dairy, uh, especially raw dairy. We're wanting to add in like oils and good fats and, and meat and eggs and all of these cheese, all of these really um, fertility supportive foods. And she was saying, you know, she kind of went too far too fast and it is a, a pendulum swing. You know, it's, 
it's sort of like going so far into one extreme creates the opposite. And so a lot of people will do that where they are in such a, a form of restriction and then they just sort of are like, oh, I, I got to go in the other direction. I got to just like completely get out of the cage right now and just have whatever. There's no rules. It's all good. And I don't think that that's a place to live forever. So that's like a step on the journey, perhaps, if that resonates. And then we find more of like the middle path somewhere in there of what actually feels most supportive of our system. So for example, you know, when I was in eating disorder recovery, I felt awful a lot of the time. It was not just about feeling so much larger, which the first time I had to gain a significant amount of weight. And that's another um, problem area that I'm going to talk about in a second is like having weight gain as like a goal. Um, but anyway, I, I felt really uncomfortable, just like not good energy and just kind of depressed and just didn't feel yeah, like my health was really improving. It sort of was just like, okay, I've I've gained all this weight and I know that was sort of the goal, that was sort of the point, but like, aren't I supposed to also be enjoying my life and feeling well and having good energy? So I definitely wasn't feeling that. Those foods were not supporting my system in an optimal way. And like I said, that was maybe part of the process for me, maybe something that I psychologically needed to go through, but physiologically, uh, wasn't awesome for me. So um, I think that's important to acknowledge in when anytime we're talking about food, that kind of being able to differentiate between what is psychologically supportive and what's physiological, physiologically supportive. So I, I'm recalling an interview that I did a while ago, and the woman that I was interviewing was sharing about her experience of rheumatoid arthritis. And that she notices that if she cuts out dairy and gluten, that it really improves her symptoms. And I remember asking her at the time, because she is more of a, like, all foods fit, um, accepting of body diversity, like, that's kind of what her work that she does. And she said, you know, psychologically, it's more important to me to be able to incorporate all foods and to eat whatever I want than to have my symptoms completely eliminated. So I thought that was really interesting that that is the power that we have to decide for ourselves of what we're prioritizing either for the rest of our lives or in the moment. So like for instance, when you're trying to conceive in a fertility space, if you're wanting to optimize your fertility, there are maybe things, practices that you're going to do in terms of diet lifestyle modifications, taking supplements, taking herbal medicine, getting treatments. Maybe there are things that you need to do for a limited period of time during the preconception phase that you don't have to do forever. You know, maybe you like to uh, run a lot and you perhaps during your conception journey do some walking, some more gentle walking or yoga or, or things that are are not getting your heart rate up so high, which, you know, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but I'm just, this is purely an example, but of something or even eating meat, for example, say you are morally not really 
wanting to eat meat, but you'll consider incorporating some animal protein while you're on the conception journey during your pregnancy and postpartum. And then for the rest of your life, maybe you're wanting to do something different. So I do think that it's important to, to have some specific goals, some specific why am I doing this? Um, so that when things get hard, as they do um, in HA recovery, it, it can be really challenging um, that you can remember why you're doing this. And so if you are trying to conceive and that's your why, you know, picturing your baby, putting your hands on your womb and saying, you know, I'm doing this for for my baby, for my spirit baby, you know, that's that's out there in the ether somewhere. So um, hopefully that can, that is helpful. So I, I also wanted to share about the weight piece. So in eating disorder recovery, and definitely in some HA um, spaces that I've I've seen, they do talk about like weight gain being a part of it, which I do think, especially in an eating disorder recovery situation, a lot of times weight gain is just going to be a part of it. That you know, if you are eating regularly throughout the day and maybe you weren't before, then you're probably going to gain weight. But I do think, I don't think that should be the focus. And so I, in eating disorder recovery, for example, I think partially it's from insurance coverage that there needs to be these sort of like attainable goals so that they can track progress. And weight is a really easy thing to track. And many of the people with eating disorders are underweight, although not all of them. And so I, I get it from like a business perspective, but I don't get it from a human perspective. I don't think it's supportive of people with eating disorders or disordered eating or people that are having trouble accepting a new body to be tracking it and talking about it. I don't think that's very helpful. So my personal approach to weight now is to not weigh myself at all. Um, and that feels really supportive of me. I also did not weigh myself throughout my pregnancy. Um, and my midwives were very supportive of that. And we're just like, your body's going to do what it's going to do. And as long as your baby is growing and everything seems good, then don't worry about it. So I didn't worry about it. And I've, I've held on to that practice and now my daughter's almost four. So it's really been wonderful. So um, I will say that, you know, in a lot of what I've been talking about, it's sort of just this focus on more food, all foods fit, no acknowledgement for blood sugar balance, which you really cannot have balanced hormones if you don't have balanced blood sugar. And so that comes from eating regularly throughout the day, having a balance of all of the different macronutrients. Consuming enough fat is also really, really important for uh, fertility in particular and in a lot of um, more processed type foods. They, they will tend to have like low fat and higher sugar, and that's really not supportive of egg quality or fertility. Um, a lot of times they're you know, advocating for more carbohydrates, which for certain people that will be really supportive of their system. And then for other people, like if a, I just think about people, if they have PCOS, for example, and they go to eating disorder treatment, 
how awful the the meal plan would be for them. So there there just really isn't any space for for nuance in a in a group program or or something like that. So working, you know, on a more individualized basis, I think specifically working with fertility nutrition rather than just sort of general nutrition is really important. So yeah, I mean, I just as I'm sharing about all of this, I just have in the back of my mind, like all of the providers that have said to me that wanting to eat healthy or having these Chinese medicine principles of optimizing nutrition in my mind being part of my eating disorder. And I've really held on to that for a long time and been resistant to sharing because I never want to collude with somebody else's eating disorder of like your orthorexia is good. So this is just what I, where I have arrived in, you know, all of the different treatments that I've been exposed to and also what I've felt in my own body of what is actually most supportive of my system and me feeling well in addition to tracking my cycle. So, I mean, I, I was tracking my cycle before I got pregnant and things were pretty wacky before I got pregnant. And I was following a meal plan from my eating disorder treatment center. And it was very carb heavy, uh, mostly vegetarian and enough calorically, but not nutrient dense at all. And I'm not saying this is like completely the fault of the treatment center. This was also just what I was willing to do at the time, but nobody was really telling me like, you need 80 to hundred grams of protein per day to optimize your fertility or, you know, all of the things that I share about with nutrition all the time for optimizing fertility. And so my cycle was pretty wacky. And, you know, since learning how to chart my cycle in a much more specific way, um, which I've been doing for the past three years, I have learned so much about what works for my body and what doesn't work for my body. And if I am not getting at least 90 grams of protein per day, it's going to show up in my chart. And it's gonna, I'm going to feel it too. I notice um, in terms of energy, my energy is much lower if I'm not getting enough protein. And particularly for me, um, animal protein, it's just a lot easier to make sure that you're getting in enough and you're getting all of the nutrients that you need. And so it's possible that if you're somebody that's, you know, really great at food combining and and have a lot of time and, and energy to devote to making sure you're getting all the nutrition you need um, in a vegetarian format, then more power to you. And I, I would love, I always love to learn more about what is most supportive of each individual woman's body, but I am purely sharing about my own experience right now. So hopefully that doesn't feel like I'm trying to put my experience on, on anybody that's listening here. So yeah, another thing that um, we would talk about a lot in eating disorder recovery and I've heard shared about in HA recovery too is choosing the relationship with another person over your eating disorder. So it would be something like, you know, your friend wants to go get, like I said, I don't want to demonize any foods, but wants to go get something that you don't think is so supportive of your health. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the concept of choosing the relationship would be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to do that because I'm choosing my relationship with you over what my eating disorder is telling me to do. 
And I do think that that is a really supportive practice, but I do also think it's important to acknowledge that it doesn't have to be like that all the time. So for example, if you're hanging out, if you live with somebody that is eating things that are not so supportive of their health, it's not that you would want to be choosing your relationship with them every day, all day long, and not be eating what's supportive of your health just because they're not. So I hope that 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 makes sense and is, you know, not feeling like I'm trying to demonize any one food. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that that is just something to, to consider, you know, that if it is a matter of going out for ice cream with friends once in a while, if that feels supportive, please go for it. And ice cream can also be very supportive of your fertility. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess one other thing that I was thinking about is, you know, is it full recovery from HA or from an eating disorder to accept a body that doesn't feel strong and energized and un- that feels uncomfortable? And I, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so, so hard to share about these topics in a more public uh, format because like I said, it is so nuanced. So what I would say to one woman would be really different from what I would say directly to another woman. And in my experience in, you know, living with my own, my own body, I will say that there are still moments of discomfort and still moments where it's challenging to acknowledge that I'm in the body I'm in and and this is what my body must be in order for it to be healthy. But I know that there have been other iterations of my body that I didn't feel healthy. I didn't feel strong. And this isn't coming from like a an image of one's body, but I I don't think that can ever be completely removed from the equation. Um, But in my experience of of being in a body, yeah, it just, it feels to me, yeah, that I, I don't think you would have to force yourself or just be miserable and uncomfortable and kind of not want to even get dressed because you just really feel uncomfortable and not great all day, every day. I don't know that that's where anybody really needs to go. Um, But that's just, like I said, my personal opinion. So, and I I did work with an HA coach at one point and I I do think that it was helpful, um, you know, but it was a little bit just kind of like eat more and what do you want to add in? Um, just move a little bit less, like kind of a little bit more, like a little bit of things that I kind of already was aware of. And what I noticed, because I I was doing that while I was also um, doing my practitioner training program for fertility awareness. And I just noticed that what I was learning in the fertility awareness method education class was really, really, really beneficial for me personally to 
you know, my teacher would just say, you know, just track your cycle, track your mucus, track your temperature, and you really have to get enough protein. We've really got to balance these macronutrients. And it, that just not, yeah, I guess it was a, like a little bit more of a heavy hitter. You know, she was just kind of a little bit more adamant, like you're not going to get your cycle back if you don't do these things and not in a mean way, but just in a, a very firm way, like kind of a motherly way, which is kind of funny. She's only a couple years older than me, but yeah, I, I just, I really appreciated that. And I try to bring that to the women that I work with as well of, of not being too kind of like lenient about it, that it is important to meet people where they're at, but also to see significant improvement. And if you're not seeing an improvement, like what else do we need to do here? You know? And so for me in particular, I was trying to get my period back postpartum. And one of the things that I um, really appreciated uh, about what my teacher had to share about that experience in particular is that if it goes beyond 18 months without a period after you've had your baby, like look into why. And she's known me for a long time. So she knows that I've had a history of, of HA as well. So she was kind of like, it's probably going to be the nutrition for you. Like, let's keep talking about that. And it definitely was. And I would say that the primary thing for me was nutrient density and protein. And that is a lot of what I harp about on this podcast, a lot of what I'm doing in my one-on-one -on -one work and in my course. And so I do think that that is, is really important and is something that is, is often missed in the HA space where it is just kind of like eat more, rest more. That's really all we need to be doing. Um, it is a much more nuanced conversation than that. But like I said, it's also, you know, people sharing on Instagram and you, it's a lot more difficult to have nuanced conversation in that space. So I, I definitely think that that is part of it. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention is liver capsules. I do think that they have been really transformational um, for me in particular. I had always had low temperatures. So somewhere in the like the low 97, sometimes even high 96 um, in my pre-ovulatory phase. And now I really very rarely go below 97.4, even in my pre-ov, which is optimal. And when I leave out my liver, if I run out or something, uh, which I rarely do these days because I have a subscription, and I will provide a link to the liver pills that I love in this episode as well. So you can check it out. And I would say that that is another um, thing that was really supportive in my own HA recovery. And I am happy to report that I have had a regular cycle ever since I got it back in September of 2022. I've had a cycle every single month. There are still things that I'm working on, but the only reason I know that I'm working on them is because I'm tracking and charting uh, with a very specific fertility awareness method, uh, charting method, which is what I teach. And I find it really fascinating to watch the different things that I try and, and changes that I make and how it impacts my cycle. Um, mostly always kind of just moving towards more optimal parameters every month. So that's been really fun and exciting for me. So hopefully this was helpful for anybody out there struggling with HA, whether it was in the past or is currently happening. If you are having delayed ovulation, short luteal phase, whatever the case may be, hopefully this was supportive and don't forget to share the episode if you enjoyed it today. Thanks so much for listening. So I 
was thinking I was done with the episode, but I just wanted to give a little bit more airtime to the postpartum recovery piece because I kind of just breezed right through that as I was listening back to it. I was like, man, that was so different when I was actually in the experience. So my daughter was born in 2020, in March of 2020, and my didn't get my cycle back until September of 2022. So she was already two and a half. And so I just kind of wanted to say that I definitely fell with outside of what would be considered the normal 12 to 18 month um, for a cycle to return after you've had a baby, even if you're breastfeeding or not. So I still was nursing her that entire time, and she actually just stopped nursing this month. So it's January of 2024. So she's almost been nursing for the full four years. And I went to a number of holistic healthcare practitioners and midwives as well during my postpartum time, because I knew that this HA was a a thing that I was kind of always struggling with for so much of my life. So it was a, a little bit of a red flag to me after I got past the year mark, and then it's a year and a half. And I'm thinking, you know, this is probably problematic that my cycle still hasn't returned. Um, but all of them, every practitioner I talked to is like, it's the breastfeeding. You got to just wean her. You have to night wean her. Um, there's been so many times on my mothering journey where it has felt like I need to force something in order to get to what I want. And so for anybody out there, you know, one of the people that I'm thinking of right now is women that are postpartum and they don't get their cycles back and they want to have another baby. So there, it's not that you need to force anything. And in my experience, and this is, you know, not a research study, this is my lived experience. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I it didn't feel right to me to to wean my daughter. It didn't feel right to me to um, put either of us through that, especially um, as somebody that's a single mother and hasn't really had any help from my partner when it comes to, even when he was around, um, when it comes to weaning and, and having some other ways to soothe her. You know, it really, it was something that was a bond that was really special for both of us and wasn't something that I, it felt really forced. It didn't feel natural to me to say like, oh, well, in order for me to be healthy, I need to cut off this bond. So everybody makes the decision that's right for them. There are other women I've talked to that are really uncomfortable and it's the breastfeeding relationship is not serving them. Maybe they've never breastfed. But for me, you know, there were challenging parts of it. But for the most part, it was really, really lovely. And I always appreciated having that in my toolbox to be able to soothe my daughter. And I'm really happy that I had my teacher, uh, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, who I've talked about previously, um, in my corner and saying, you know, you don't have to wean your daughter. It's not about breastfeeding at this point. She's eating food. It's about your nutrition. It's that you need more protein, you need more food overall, and more nutrient density. And that's what I did. And I did get my cycle back. I, like I said, there's still things that I'm working on, but I, I know that it was, it was really the nutrition piece for me and for a lot of people with HA. And even if you maybe wouldn't think it's HA because you're still breastfeeding, 
you know, I would just get kind of curious about that. So anyway, I just felt like it would, the episode was incomplete without me sharing that. So hopefully this was helpful. If you are calling in a pregnancy right now or will be sometime in the not so distant future, then you may be interested in my conscious conception with fertility awareness self-study course. This course includes information on everything that you ever wanted to know about using the fertility awareness method for consciously conceiving your baby. The course starts off with information about female reproductive anatomy and physiology, as well as the menstrual cycle parameters that we are assessing in determining if your menstrual cycle falls within healthy ranges or not. This is very, very important for understanding what is happening with your fertility overall. Then we get into detailed instructions on using the fertility awareness method for conscious conception, including information on basal body temperature or BBT tracking and charting, cervical mucus tracking and charting, as well as cervical position. Then we get into all of the details about improving both sperm and egg quality using supplementation, diet and lifestyle modifications, and some holistic treatment modalities that I use in my practice. And so I will be sharing all of that information with you. At the end of the course, we also wrap up with postpartum charting because you will have access to this course forever. And so after you consciously conceive your baby and have your baby, then you can learn how to chart in the postpartum phase using the same course. And there is also a module on preventing pregnancy, which you can use prior to entering into your conception journey. So for example, if you come off of birth control and you want to prevent pregnancy for a period of time before consciously conceiving your baby, you can use the pregnancy prevention module at that point or for children's spacing or when you are all done having your babies. You can also use the fertility awareness method to prevent future pregnancies. So that is everything that's included in the course and you get all of that for just $4.97. If you are interested, there is a link provided for you in the show notes. You can also head over to my Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness and there is a link to access the course and read more information about what is offered in the course there. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you think might benefit from hearing some of the information that was shared here today. If you're interested in finding more about me, you can find me on my website at rosebudwellness.com, on Instagram at rosebud underscore wellness, or on Facebook at the Rosebud Wellness Community. Also, if you're feeling called to leave a, a rating or writing a review, that would be amazing. It really helps to get the podcast out to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.